1: Hello and welcome back to the Media and Communications channel, a podcast on the New Book Network. My name is Monica Wilkie and I'll be your host for this episode. Today we'll be speaking with BJ Mendelssohn about his new book, Privacy, and how we get it back. BJ, hello and welcome.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to have you and we're looking forward to getting stuck into what is a very topical and I'm sure of interest to an awful lot of people considering the surrounding news and politics.
0: Yeah, this is uh, I. I couldn't have timed this any better. <laughs>
1: yes, it was quite genius on your behalf. Well done. So, before we get into the meat of the book, can you just please give us a bit of an introduction into yourself and also what motivated you to write the book?
0: Sure. So, uh, my name is B.J. Mendelssohn. I'm a comic book writer and author. Uh, my previous book was called "Social Media Is Bullshit," which was put out by uh, Saint Martin's Press. And I've been traveling over the world the past about three or four years to talk about the internet and different topics such as privacy and social media. So, uh, this book, you know, I, the privacy discussion, at least in the, in the States, people are aware that something odd happens with their data, but they weren't quite clear as to this big multi million dollar business that exists in packaging and selling their information. So, the book was designed just to state everything as plainly and and hopefully as humorously as possible so that anyone can pick it up and understand the privacy debate and what happens with the data and why I think they should be compensated for it.
1: Okay, so in the first chapter, you said that you don't really go into a whole lot of detail about the Facebook Russia situation because when you handed in your manuscript, it was in October last year and a lot of the stuff hadn't happened. However, given what has happened since then and the amount of media attention it's been given, I think it would be of interest to the audience if you just sort of made a few remarks about how you think the whole Facebook Russia thing and the, you know, Zuckerberg being dragged up in front of the Senate, how do you think that's all been playing out? What are your thoughts?
0: Well, I think there's a a few key points to it. Uh, The first is that when Zuckerberg went to Congress, I think it exposed the American government as not not really comprehending what, <laughs> what Facebook does. And uh, I think that it sort of explains, because one of the things that go into the book is that, you know, in order to fix this problem, we need to more or less mimic GDPR in, in the United States and, and worldwide. Uh, and I think that that whole session kind of exposed how unprepared we are to really have that discussion. Uh, so it was actually a really good thing, although it came in, in a bad package, kind of like cough syrup. Uh, So, I mean, that's sort of the first thing. The second thing is that I think it's kind of a blessing in disguise also in that the American media typically doesn't talk about privacy. Um, They'll cover like a data breach and then they'll be like, oh, no, this is terrible. And, um, you know, you should change your password every few months or so. And then they'll kind of move on with their life. But the Facebook and the Russian involvement with Facebook in the 2016 election actually gives the American media an opportunity to talk about privacy. So, Uh, Although it was under bad circumstances, I think it it kind of worked out really well in that we're having this discussion that we're talking about what Facebook's role is in politics and what social media's role is in politics and whether or not Russia swayed it. And then the third and final thing is that I feel like I I don't want to say that the Russian interference had no impact at all, but I'm still not convinced after the book has come out uh, that it really mattered. I, I think that Americans typically vote the way that they vote. Uh, and we like to find convenient excuses sometimes when our presidential candidate choice doesn't win. Uh, I still remember you know, Al Gore losing and people blaming uh, the voting system in Florida, but they never talked about how he's one of very few presidential candidates to actually lose his home state. And had he actually carried his home state in the 2000 election, he would have won, making what happened in Florida kind of a moot point. And I kind of feel that way with uh, the presidential election here, whereas if Hillary had actually won, we wouldn't be talking about Facebook and Russia at all, uh, despite Russia's attempts interference.
1: You said that it's good that we're having these conversations at the moment because often privacy gets ignored in the media. Do you think, though, there's the risk that we'll have this conversation, we'll have the Senate hearing, and then in six months, 12 months, we all would have forgotten about this and no real change would have actually been made?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I can't speak for other governments around the world, but uh, in the in United States, we have a long history of getting irrationally angry about things only for that thing that we're mad about to die down, uh, and then we forget about it, and then something happens, and then it, the whole thing starts all over again. So that We've seen that throughout American history. We've seen that in recent history with uh, Edward Snowden when uh, the documents from The Guardian and, and The New York Times said, you know, they had published reports of the material he had leaked, and there were hearings, and people were doing a lot of hand wringing. And here we are uh, almost five years later, and we're having pretty much the same discussion that we had back then. So, uh, yeah, it, it's unfortunate that nothing really seems to change um, throughout American history, at least that we've only made changes incrementally. So, uh, I'm not optimistic that anything's going to be different this time. I, I just look at Yahoo! Uh, Where you know they finally got fined thirty five million dollars for basically lying uh, to the American people and to the world about how severe the data breach was, but then you had Facebook with Cambridge Analytica saying you know only sixty million people were exposed, and then very quietly they said, oh yeah, the number is probably much higher than that, Uh, and they said it was eighty seven million, and then they hinted after they had said eighty seven million that it was probably more. So uh, the the biggest issue is that there's no consequences in the States for things like this. So as long as there's no real consequences for things like this from happening, it's just going to keep repeating itself.
1: In your book, you are rather critical of Facebook to put it politely. And at one, at one point you say, quote, putting money into Facebook advertisements can be like flushing your money down the toilet, end quote. Can you just elabor- elaborate a bit what you mean by that?
0: Sure. So it, it, in the first book, what I talk about is that the platforms and the way we think about social media is kind of ass backwards. And we we tend to think if we put money into Facebook that that'll solve our, all our problems and that you know, we'll, we'll go and become this overnight success. And, and more often than not, putting money into Facebook advertising doesn't usually generate the results that, that people think it will. Uh, Despite the fact that, you know, 19% of America's GDP is tied up in advertising and more and more of that advertising spend is going into Facebook and Google. So people don't stop and think about how most of the traffic on the web is, is created by bots and not people. They don't stop and think about click farms. They don't stop and think about all that ad fraud that happens on a social media platform like Facebook. They just hear, oh, Facebook has almost 2 billion people. Therefore, it's a platform we have to use. And what I wanted to point out, uh, hopefully humorously, is that it just doesn't work the way you think it does. More often than not, uh, anyone that that's run Facebook advertising will tell you that unless you dump hundreds and thousands of dollars into it, you're, you're really not going to see the kind of results that you think you're going to get from running the ads. And, and yet, you know, I don't know if people have a short memory, at least in the States, but it wasn't too long ago that Sheryl Sandberg was going around and saying, If you're a small business, uh, you need to have a Facebook page. It's absolutely free. It's a critical part of your marketing. And then once everyone signed up, Facebook turned around and said, oh, hey, uh, if you want to see your audience on here, you have to pay. And oh, hey, you have to pay even more now uh, because, quote, unquote, everyone's newsfeed is busy. So I, I think that they've been as wonderful as the tool can be for certain things. I think the company itself has been completely shady about a lot of things. And, and one of those things is the the impact and effect of, of putting money into Facebook advertising as opposed to uh, putting it into like the Times of London and the BBC.
1: In a book like yours that's discussing quite technical things, I think it's Im- important to, to do a bit of definitional work. So just then you, you referenced a couple of things. You said click farms and obviously big data is mentioned quite a few times throughout your book. Would you mind just giving us a quick definition of what those terms mean? Because I often think that they're used and people don't necessarily have a a proper understanding of what they actually are.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the debates that I'm getting into with uh, the other people in the privacy space is they sort of assume that everyone knows what VPN means. And uh, you know, a lot of just don't. A lot, of, most people don't know what VPN. is you know, it's a virtual private network. Or when when you say big data, what it really means. Uh, some of that's because of advertising. And you know, we we don't want people to uh, know what these things are because then there's there's money to be made in, in you know the mystery. So uh, big data originally is just as useless term to describe uh, having too much information to store in one computer. And somehow we've, we've gone and we've, uh, we've manipulated that a bit to make it mean pretty much anything we want. And, uh, then you have things like GDPR and, and click farms. And click farms is basically just, uh, you know, people in Bangalore typically or, or people in Russia, uh, that are sitting there and just clicking on things. And, and a lot of that's done to mimic real world activities so that when you do put money on Facebook, you, you think oh oh well, I'm kind of popular you know all these people are clicking on something and meanwhile it's it's a bunch of people that another firm might have hired to make it look like uh, that thing is popular and the best example of that is actually over on YouTube uh, in the states you know I, I often wonder if Justin Bieber is a sign of the end times and, and you know civilization's about to crumble and uh, the reason why he's popular in the first place is because the guy behind him Scooter Braun went and purchased all these fake views, you know, he purchased people in Bangalore going and watching the video and sharing it in order to fool YouTube system to feature the video. And so there, there's a whole lot of shadiness that goes on that we that we just don't discuss. And that's really what I'm talking about in the book when I talk about click farms and botnets and fake traffic and things like that.
1: Do you think people don't discuss these things just because they don't understand the technical issues? And the second you start getting into it, people sort of go a bit cross-eyed and say, oh, you're talking about click farms and that sort of thing. So in addition to the privacy concerns, you've got this extra layer of technicality that most people don't understand.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I, I think that when you use the joke that I used to use is when you use the word algorithm, uh, when talking to most American reporters, their eyes glaze over and uh, they, they just completely lose interest. And so that, that's fine if you're a marketing person, but it's really bad for the American public because of that we tend to think of these algorithms as magic instead of what they are, which is just an order uh, of things that should happen for the computer to follow. It's not really a big technical thing. We've just allowed it to become one. So uh, it's unfortunate. That's sort of why the, the Russian thing w- was helpful because I've been talking about this stuff for years and um, being able to get a, a reporter. And it's not, this isn't a, meant to be a criticism of the media. It's just, uh, you know, I've worked as an editor at CBS. I've worked as an editor for other media sites. So I'm very aware of their responsibility and time constraints and budget constraints. And so, uh, you know, it wasn't until the Russia thing came in where they were able to to use that as a hook to talk about privacy, to talk about big data and talk about algorithms and and why these things work. But it's a little frustrating because, you know, I'm not alone in saying uh, this is a problem. I mean, when you when you look at the history of Facebook, if you go back to 2014, there was this big thing called growth hacking. Uh, it's kind of died down a bit since then. But, you know, there it was right front and center. All of the tech companies were talking about essentially being creepy to grow their companies. And then you had people from Facebook that were like, oh, yeah, we we bought... Uh, these third-party email service providers so we, that we can spam people. And uh, we found ways to abuse other people's advertising networks, so much so that those advertising networks asked us to stop doing what we were doing uh, in order to grow. And, and there, you know, all this stuff was out there front and center. But I, for the life of me, the media, at least in the States, would not cover it because they didn't want to get into uh, some of the more technical details of, of these alleged growth hacks.
1: You briefly touch on a few ways in the book in which people could increase their security online, like using Tor, Just Delete Me, and so on. Can you run through your top tips for staying safe online?
0: Yeah, so Tor is one of those things where it sounds great on paper, but I found that most people find it to be too complicated. Uh, so, um, Can you, just you know,
1: explain what it is? First? Sure, yes. Yeah.
0: So when you use any sort of web browser, it, it collects a vast amount of information. Some browsers are better than others, but Tor basically hides your identity uh, by kind of ping-ponging who you are across several different servers. So although it's um, impossible, it's incredibly difficult for someone to gather information on you when you're using a browser like Tor. Uh, So that's typically like the go-to answer for privacy people is, oh, you should use Tor and you should use a virtual private network and you should use cryptocurrency. Uh, but I found that most people are, are just not there yet when it comes to uh, their their preferences. And to be fair, Tor is not the easiest browser in the world to use. So as useful as it is, it can be real tricky. So uh, I tend to advise people to do very low-tech things. Uh, I tend to tell them, you know, put tape over your web camera, or if you have any sort of camera in your house that's uh, ro- connected to a device that's connected to the internet, you should cover it up. When it's not in use, uh, you know, the Xbox Connect is a great example of that, where uh, for years people were putting these huge honking cameras right in their living room that was constantly on and sending information to Microsoft. And, and so I tell people you should cover up your, your camera, you should change your passwords every every year unless you're the victim of a data breach. And, and uh, this is very old school, but I, I tell people to take their passwords and put it in a notebook offline uh, where no one, ideally, anyway, could could get to it, so that you know no one has any access to your passwords. It's in a secure place. It's not hooked to the internet because anything that's hooked to the internet can be hacked and probably will be at some point.
1: I was so glad when I read that you said to put the tape over the webcam because I've been doing that for years, and people said I was paranoid.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, uh, but you know what? When when people say that, I just point to Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, you know, th- notoriously, he's been photographed with his webcam being covered. So if, if the guy behind Facebook, uh, who's encouraging you to share all this data is is covering his webcam, then maybe we should be too.
1: Exactly. And also the writing the passwords down in a notebook. I remember I said there's someone's, I'd, I write my passwords down in a notebook. And they go, but what if someone gets it? I said, if they get it, they would have had to break into my house. And I probably have other problems then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's right. I mean, uh, yeah. Look, I, I i have a I have a large family. I um, I, I take care of uh, two siblings. that are mentally disabled, and um, so there's always people in the home. Is kind of what I'm getting at. And so it's entirely possible that that someone will get that notebook and log in. But uh, I have more control over that situation than I do with like the Yahoo data breach, where they just turned around and said, "Oh, by the way, absolutely everyone who's ever had a Yahoo account has been hacked. Uh, good luck. I'll see you all later."
1: That's exactly what happened. Yes. So, in the start of chapter two, you begin by talking about World War One, which I thought was quite interesting because talking about safety online and the digital world, it's not necessarily a natural starting off point. So, can you just talk us through what was the reasoning behind that?
0: Yeah, I have. Um, I'm, so, I'm sort of different, I guess, from most privacy advocates in that they seem to have issues with uh, any of the governments collecting data um, on their people. And, and the reason why I started with World War I was to point out, in at least in the United States, uh, most people reading this book have not been alive at a point where the government wasn't doing that. Uh, we, you know, we we're we, all under 100 years old uh, for the most part. Definitely my audience is under 100 years old, I would think. And, and so the, the point was just say, look, you know, the federal government sits uh, since the beginning of the Republic, you know, we we used to spy on uh, the foreigners and recent immigrants. and then during the Civil War, uh, Abraham Lincoln was sitting there listening to the telegraphs and, and deciding which newspaper and which uh, people to kind of go and suppress based on whether or not uh, their activities were disruptive to the draft. So there's never really been a point in American history where the federal government hasn't been at, in some way, shape or form spying on people. Uh, what was different, though, in World War One is that they actually had the technology to do it in mass, And they also had all these for-profit companies that were popping up uh, that could actually provide the data to them. So I, I kind of use World War One as the starting point of this sort of mass data collection. But then they'll also make the point that, uh, you know, I don't personally like that the government does that. But at the same time, I, I know they've been doing it since before I was alive. So. There's really not much I can do to stop them either. And so I kind of wanted to drive the privacy debate away from this kind of absolutist, you know, the government is bad and the government's collecting your data and more towards, hey, let's talk about surveillance capitalism and, you know, companies like Facebook and Google. That's bad. And that's something that we probably have more control over than uh, what the government does or doesn't do with our data.
1: In that, same ch- in that same chapter, you bring up the Espionage Act, which I think is something a lot of people probably would have heard but not necessarily be familiar with. Can you just go into a little bit more detail about what that actually is?
0: Yeah, so the, the espionage is basically the first time, um, you know, I mentioned during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was, was kind of eavesdropping on people and it was really controversial uh, because, you know, there was a debate going on as to him suspending people's rights and the, the overreach of the federal government. And so coming out of the Civil War into World War One, when the federal government had decided, you know, whether whether for good reasons or bad reasons, and I'm not going to attempt to justify anything the American government does because we often do very bad things. Uh, you know, the Espionage Act basically gave them license to continue doing what they were doing, but make it legal and say, listen, you know, if, if someone is the enemy or we feel that they're the enemy, as uh, nebulous as that term may be then we have the right to collect data on them and we have the right to penalize people. And so the Espionage Act, and there's a few other laws that come out along with it, kind of make everything nice and official. You know, They put a nice bow on the uh, activity that they've been doing since forever.
1: While we're on the topic of government, you do detail the long history of the cooperation between government and corporations. Why do these relationships exist? And given that they do exist, why do these companies make a a big song and dance and protest publicly about the government when, in 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 reality, they're handing over the information without little fuss?
0: Well, I think it's good. It's just good PR, honestly. I you know, that's why you, we typically will see Apple and Google and Facebook and Twitter talking about protecting you and protecting their protecting their users, and fighting these things in court. And meanwhile, they're, they're just handing over your information left and right. Uh, the, the truth is is that the, the tech, uh, at least the, for the most recent tech companies that have popped up since about 2008, uh, we have been very generous in not regulating them here in the States. They, they have narrowly avoided uh, a lot of antitrust investigations and a lot of FTC investigations. I mean, the FTC in the States basically slapped Facebook on the wrist in 2011 and, and basically shook their finger and said, ah, naughty, naughty. Uh, and that was it. <laughs> like they, they really, they really didn't investigate them or find them or anything. And that kind of created the situation that we have today. So there's a big song and dance that they do, but in the meantime, they're handing over all your information to continue that special relationship, uh, where they're, where they're not being regulated and can kind of run roughshod over people. So uh, that, that's sort of the, the big, uh, the big story there, you know, I, I think that it's in their best interest financially to just cooperate with the federal government for that reason. You know, because the next time that an antitrust investigation comes along, or the next time the FTC, like right now, uh, investigates Facebook, they might not be so friendly. So it's it's just all it all comes down to to the you know their self interest. And we saw that back in World War One with Western Union, where it was kind of like in their best self interest to cooperate because the government could then turn around and say, hey, we're going to take all of your telegraph wires, or or we can turn around and start fighting you every day for not cooperating with us.
1: A common defense that you hear from government about why they need to collect this data and why they need all this information is in order for them to stop tragedies, attacks, and so forth. What do you make of this argument?
0: Uh, it, it's it's kind of hilarious, or, or it wouldn't it, would, it wouldn't be hilarious if there wasn't actual death and violence involved, you know. Because w- what we've seen, again, at least stateside, is that we are completely ineffective with uh, the information that we do collect. So, for anyone that that's seen the, the miniseries, "The Looming Tower," or read the book, I mean, the events of nine eleven basically come down to us having all of this information and doing nothing with it, and then you know what happened happened. And we've seen that time and time again where we have all this data that we don't act on it for one reason or another, so it, we have yet to prove at least publicly that this data collection is a good thing you know sometimes at least during the time of Edward Snowden when you know he was front page news, you had a lot of people kind of come out and say, "Listen, you know uh, his information is damaging, and a lot of people have died because the information that he's put out we've we've prevented a lot of tragedies but there's no, there's no evidence of that. You know, there hasn't been a point where the federal government has come out and said uh, these are the events that we've stopped that we can talk about, and this is why this is a good thing. So uh, it's kind of a failure of communication on their part to explain why the data collection is, is useful, uh, and because the history says that's not. But but there's also the flip side to that, right? So uh, we caught the the Boston Marathon bombers because of all that data collection. So. We weren't so good in stopping these things from happening, but because of the data collection, we were able to very quickly identify these people. And so it, it's sort of this, this double-edged sword. But I, I feel that, at least from a communications point of view, the government has not done a good job of explaining to people why we collect all this data. And, you know, the, the best thing uh, and the thing that I point out in the book is that when all of this data collection started, uh, we were still unable to stop the first terrorist attack on American soil, which was from Italian anarchists. Uh, who set off a horse bomb, oh, which is uh, you know, such a thing does indeed exist. I'm just, picturing, I'm just uh, picturing a
1: horse exploding. Sorry. You said horse bomb. Right. <laughs> That's just what I'm picturing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
0: Isn't it crazy? Like, it was, it's not something, mo- you know, like in, in modern terms, we would not even picture that. But that's, that's exactly what happened was they set off a, you know, there was a, there was a carriage with bombs in it, they set off on Wall Street, and we never caught those people. And that was during a time of mass data collection, just giving it away. So uh, it, it's really, uh, some of it's a communication issue. And some of it's just we, we have yet to prove that this stuff works.
1: I remember I read once, not long back, it was on this same point about the government collecting data to stop attacks and so forth. And they said just by the sheer volume of data, there's no way that they could go through it all in order to be effective enough to stop those sorts of things happening.
0: Yeah. So that's that's kind of the funny thing, right? Is that we, for the past 100 years, both private and government entities have collected more and more data, but there's no real plan. With all that data so we're you know you see all these people running around even just recently i saw someone writing a post saying that you know big data is the new big oil and so we we've always had this mentality of more 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 uh but what what we don't tell people is that we don't quite have the technology to sift through it uh in the way that we advertise so a good example of that is like the algorithm on amazon and facebook where it's not very complicated you know it's it's very easy if you wanted to abuse these platforms to go and do so uh, because the more complicated the system is, the less it is the function, you know, the less likely it is to, to load fast and present you pleasant baby pictures. You know, it, It's, it would struggle and maybe present data that you, you didn't want to see. So uh, we, we don't quite have the technology to sort through all of this stuff. And, and that's always been the problem where we're just collecting reams and reams of it instead of having a person. I, I think that that's sort of the big thing, right? Is that, uh, At least with the Silicon Valley tech companies, if you tell them to hire more people, they will turn around and say, well, that doesn't scale. And so in their quest for maximum profits, they have not hired people to sift through this data. They're they're dependent on artificial intelligence, which is what we heard Zuckerberg say to Congress. He said, all of our problems will basically be solved by AI. But the joke to that is that AI just just refers to stuff that hasn't been invented yet. And so, you know, he's just basically, you know, kicking the can a bit. And so we have all this data, but we have no real means of sifting through it. And we don't want to hire the people that we need to actually go through it, which is just crazy to me.
1: You mentioned Snowden before, and you go into some detail about the Snowden case in your book. Why do people forget these sort of things so quickly?
0: I think that it's just the nature of, I, I don't wanna, you know, pigeonhole Americans. It's it's hard for me to speak about um other other media outlets. You know, from my own experience I found the Canadian media, for example, was way more receptive to social media's bullshit. Uh the United Kingdom media was way more receptive to social media's bullshit than than the American media. And so I, I just think that we tend to put uh, we tend to just move on to the next thing very quickly here in the States. You know, it's, I, I, you know, not to, people can read and this whatever they want, but with uh, our current president, every day is a new news new cycle. And uh, sometimes there's multiple new news cycles uh, that occur throughout the day with, with the current president. And so I, I think that with the way the American media operates, for better or worse, it, it's just, it's very easy to lose important things, In order to chase this shiny new thing and so we're we're just constantly pushing these things to the side i think you know if you say to someone hey the nsa was collecting sexy photos of women throughout the united states who were undressing in front of their web camera that's a huge story and and that was front page news three or four years ago but now uh no one talks about it because it's just been buried underneath all these news news cycles that appear
1: you mentioned social media a couple times then while we're on the topic People often enjoy using these types of products because they are free, and I'm using "free" in air quotation marks. Is that the case that these these platforms are actually free?
0: Yeah, well, nothing's ever really free, and, and that's kind of what I what I really want to drive home in the book. And so, there's this old argument from Jerome Lanier that uh, you know something may be free for you to use, let's say on Facebook, but the cost is just being transferred to somewhere else. So it may be free to access Facebook, but you're downloading all of these photos or you're viewing all of these videos because yep. Facebook is doing that big push into video and, and that may result in a higher data plan. So we're just, you're paying for it through other places. And then there's also the economics of, you know I mentioned that I'm a comic book writer. Uh, these platforms have made it very easy to reach an audience, but then they turn around and say, well, you've got to pay that to reach that audience. And so that's money coming out of your pocket that, that could have gone towards creating the comic. And then you've got situations of piracy and all these other things where uh, it's very difficult for artists and creatives to make a living now because of social media. And so it, it may be free for you to access, but all that content is coming from somewhere. And more often, than not, those content creators are not getting paid. And so, you know, the most famous example is, you know, I I, I was going out with uh, this woman who is a Peruvian jazz artist. And so it was kind of we had this discussion of, you know, what happens if she gets hurt and she can't tour because touring is the only way that that she makes money. Uh, And and so you may be able to access her music on Spotify, but she's only getting paid like maybe four cents. uh, If that, you know, that's being generous for per stream on Spotify. And so, the the economics of social media it has been that it may be free for you to use, quote unquote, but there's these other effects that you're not seeing behind the scenes uh, that have long-term ramifications. So, your favorite artist it might have a lot of trouble making a living, or you're, you might be paying more money on your data plan each month, or even scarier still, all that data that you're using could be collected and used to automate you of a job. So... It might be free right now, but there there are these consequences that we don't see in front of us.
1: In the book, you highlight that most Americans are concerned about their data, but yet hardly any take any steps to actually protect it. And now to get to the the crux of your book, the brilliant argument that you have, you have a rather unique suggestion about how people can earn money off their data. Talk us through that.
0: Sure. So I, I think it breaks down in a couple of different ways. So the argument is, is essentially this. If apple can have 289 billion dollars that they refuse to pay in taxes and just sit on it you know if facebook and google can make billions of dollars in in packaging and selling your information in a variety of ways to advertisers and you know companies like wpp and some big brands and why aren't you getting a cut of that i, I think at the very least if Apple's not going to pay its taxes and, and facebook and google are just going to collect all of this information on you anyway uh, it's your data it should be your choice as to how that information is collected packaged and sold and so i, I think that you should be compensated Man. and so compensation takes a few different forms uh, one of them is that facebook would pay you a license fee uh, this is not something that i came up with this is something that's been discussed since about 2000 in one way shape or form where uh companies should pay people a license fee of not it's not, we're not talking a lot of money here but we are talking you know every year you would maybe get a few hundred dollars for your data uh, and that you can go and spend on, on whatever you would like in exchange for them, for that company to carry on doing what it's doing. Uh, that's something that's very easy to implement. You know, we do already on the books in the United States that, say to people that if you're the victim of a data breach, you might be in order. You might be compensated for that data breach in, in some way, shape, or form. So we already have on our books saying that data equals money, uh, and now we just need to go and take that a step further. So that's that's sort of the first argument. The second. Is moving towards a system of uh, compensating people in exchange for their attention. So we we sort of see that with uh, the Brave browser, which can be found at brave.com and uh, the cryptocurrency known as a basic attention token, which basically works like this. Like if you're on a media site, if you enjoy what you see, you can tip the media site right then and there, whatever amount of money. Uh, Or they can say, all right, well, I know that you're a big Mets fan, the, the, the New York sports team. Uh, in exchange for serving you ads just about the Mets, uh, we will compensate you a few dollars for your time and attention using the, the basic attention token, uh, cryptocurrency. And so th- there's a few things like that where we can compensate people in exchange for their information. I don't, I don't know what form it'll ultimately take. I think, uh, under GDPR, you, you might see, uh, people turn around and, and have to pay to use Facebook and, and to have like a creepy free version. Uh, and we've already had some hysteria in the states about that. I know Sheryl Sandberg was running around saying, Oh, well, you know, if you, if you want to pay for Facebook, it's going to cost you something like $18 a month, which is just outrageous. It won't cost you $18 a month. But the idea that is there that, uh, if people are back in control of the data as they are overseas and as they are, or as they will be in Canada, because Canada is working towards, uh, essentially coding GDPR within their country. Uh, then it could be the situation of, since you're in control of your data, you might have to pay uh, for a service that was formerly free in exchange for not being creeped on.
1: Considering that millions and millions of people are currently using these services for free and freely giving away their data, do you think there's an appetite out there for a fee-paying version if it would keep your data safe, considering people seem more than happy to give it away for free?
0: Uh, yeah, I think it's coming. I think it's a generational thing, uh, where, you know, people that are Generation X or baby boomers, when, when the internet first arrived on the scene, you had people like, uh, Clay Shirky and Jeff Jarvis and Seth Godin and, and all of the, you know, the gurus talking about how information should be free. And so I think it might be too late for, uh, for those generations to get them to pay. But what we're seeing with, I, I, I hate this term, so please pardon its use. Uh, What we're seeing with millennials and uh, the generations coming up behind the millennials is that they're more willing to pay for content. You know, they pay for Spotify, they pay for Netflix. So uh, there is certainly an appetite among that generation, which includes myself, of saying, all right, well, if you make a decent sales pitch, then I'll understand why I need to pay for this. And I think that's all it takes. Honestly, I I think it just takes an honest sales pitch on Facebook's part to say, listen, you know, our business model is entirely based on collecting information and selling it. You know, we have the world's largest database of faces and we're able to target you based on the emotion that we think you're conveying as you use Facebook. And, and we have these shadow profiles of people that have never used Facebook and it can get really creepy. But if you pay us uh, a monthly fee, we will not creep on you. You know, we will give you the service that you know and love. Absolutely uh, creepiness free. I, I think they just need to make that pitch. And I think a lot of people from those early, you know, those younger generations are more likely to go along with it.
1: I really want a company to start where their slogan is "We will not creep on you." I think that's a brilliant slogan. I
0: think I, 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 think I really, I think, you know, I think I talked about this in the book where there was a reporter uh, overseas who requested her information from Tinder. And what she got was like 800 pages worth of like data that they were collecting on her, uh, which I think is kind of outrageous, especially when Tinder charges you to get all these extra features. And so I, I do think we're going to get to that point where there's going to be a company that's going to come along and say, uh, we're not going to creep on you if you give us money. I, I really do think we're getting to that point. And I, I honestly think it's probably going to be a data app that you know, maybe in a cheeky way uh, kind of uses, uses it as a tagline to get you to pay for it.
1: And um, I think you know at the moment as well, we, we talk about Facebook, Google, Spotify, but the chances are that this sort of innovation will come from a company that doesn't even exist at the moment.
0: Yeah, I, I think we're starting to see, uh, I'm, not, I'm not a big cryptocurrency guy, I don't see the hype, so I, I want to be clear. Uh, You know, when I talk about stuff like the Brave, the basic attention token, that I'm not hyping this stuff. You know, I'm very skeptical of it, but uh, I think the technology through things like the Brave browser is there. It's just not quite, it's ready for prime time, but people are not aware of it. I I don't think enough people are really even aware of great services like DuckDuckGo are are services uh, that are coming in the pipe like Flexa, which would let people go into store and use their cryptocurrency uh, to pay for something. We we just don't know that these things exist yet. Uh, And some of that's because engineers are terrible marketers, even though they think that they're great at marketing. Uh, And some of that's just when you say, you know, some of it's when you say (laughs) blockchain or cryptocurrency, people's eyes glaze over. Uh, Especially now, you know, it's sort of like it reminds me of the social media hysteria from 2008 and 2009, where all you had to say was we're a social media company. uh, And you could just flat out lie. I don't know if people remember this, but. Uh, Dell for a long time was just flat out lying to people about selling uh, computers through Twitter. Uh, The truth of the matter is, is that they may be sold like maybe less than a thousand. But if you read a lot of business and marketing books from that era, you constantly see Dell being cited as like the social media success story. And so you kind of see that right now with with blockchain and crypto where uh, everyone is sort of just making a lot of noise about it. And, And I think that that's too out of detriment. Uh, to things like Brave and things like the Basic Attention Token, who could solve a lot of the problems of what we're talking about in this interview, but uh, the young know, people just don't quite know that they exist.
1: What rights or mechanisms currently exist that can help people protect themselves online and protect their data?
0: Yeah, so there's more. There's more complicated things out there. I mean, there's, there is Tor. There are virtual private networks. There are. Uh, there's there's hardware out there that you can plug into that will create a, a virtual private network, essentially. Uh, those things typically are very challenging for people to use, though. So I, I tend to tell people that there's not much you can do on, on the technology front. What you can do is more uh, reaching out to your state and city representatives and, and having them push for change. Because I, I think that the, the issue we have is that if you have an internet connected device, it, it can be hacked. Uh, it, it, not that it will be, but it can be. And then you have services like MoviePass, which uh, you don't realize are actually data companies. You know, MoviePass says for nine ninety nine, you can go and see whatever movie you would like for the month. But what they don't tell you is that they're collecting reams and reams of your information uh, and then selling it. So I, I don't think that there's a lot of things out there technologically that can stop some of these issues from happening. You can use an ad blocker. You can use Privacy Badger. I recommend most tools that um, the Electronic Frontier Foundation puts out. Uh, you can use HTTPS everywhere, which which makes sure that you have a secure connection or a more secure connection than you have. But I think that's sort of just the – it's more like putting a Band-Aid on the cut at, at Yellowware. It kind of helps, but it's not really going to solve the problem when you keep cutting yourself.
1: I'm going to end on a question that you yourself pose in in relation to all the – privacy and data breaches and why people should care so what
0: yeah so it's a hard question to answer honestly you know i i we as a species and this isn't uh fortunately this is not limited to americans this applies to all of us um we we are very bad about predicting the future and we're not so great about uh thinking long term with things at, at least in the states we have this culture of uh, thanks to Wall Street and, 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 partially thanks to Facebook, where we want everything now and, you know, consequences be damned. You know, we have, uh, power plants that we put up that we know pollute the environment and we know climate change is the thing. And yet we don't, uh, no one is doing anything, at least stateside, to really do anything about climate change. You know, we're not thinking about those things or spending the money. So we're very bad as a species to think about the long term consequences. So it's very easy to say, so what? Because, you know, right in our present, we don't see the consequences, but what we don't see coming around the pike is, you know, people automation kind of coming in and wiping out jobs because of all the information that we've given away for free. Uh, you know, we, we don't see that as a consequence. We don't see, you know, the idea that we completely live in public and the consequences of that. Uh, you, you know, a lot of people go to Pornhub. Uh, I'm not ashamed to admit that I am a frequent user and uh, Pornhub knows more about me than my family probably does. And so, uh, that information is packaged and sold, and you know that information could be used in some way, shape, or form in the states to penalize me or keep me from getting a job or getting a loan or, or getting something that I've applied for because someone can go and apply for that information. So it, it's you know there are these consequences that we don't often think about. There, there's a lot of um, social justice and human rights issues that we're just now talking about. This great book called Algorithms of Oppression. Uh, and weapons of mass destruction that kind of go into that and talk about, you know, it might be fine if you're a straight white guy um, using the stuff and having this information collected on you. But if you are part of uh, a minority group, then you might be further penalized in some way, shape or form because this this data is now out there and available to penalize you with. So uh, again, short term, it's easy to say, so what long term there are these pretty big consequences coming around the corner uh, we just don't stop and, and think about them.
1: Before I let you go, we always like to finish up by asking our authors, what are you working on now?
0: Oh, yeah. So I uh, I am working on a self-help graphic novel. Uh, it's called Don't Be Evil, uh, A Guide to Being a Successful Human. And so uh, originally it was going to be a book, but I just, I, you know, I, I spent a lot, of, I spent a lot of time at Barnes & Noble doing research of Every time I want to write a book, I'll, I'll look and see how crowded the field is and what's out there and what's been said. Uh, so I was originally going to write something on atheism, but I, I kind of got pushed away from that because I don't think I can quite touch what's what's been published so far. So I was looking at self-help. and I was like, wow, this is really crowded. What if we did it as a comic book? Uh, so that's sort of the thing I'm working on right now. And uh, that's coming in a pike. It's, uh, the first issue should be out in June and then at some point, I'll do another book, and I don't quite know what it'll be. Uh, just one thing before I go. I've been giving away my my phone number. Uh, part of that's because I feel that I, I have no privacy anymore. Y'all, you know, I'm part of a generation where everything there is to know about me is probably out there. And so I'm kind of showing people this is the world that we live in. So I have no problem giving okay. away my cell phone number. And if people listening to this text me the word sheetrock, which is spelled exactly as it sounds, sheetrock. I will send them a free PDF copy of Social Media is Bullshit. Uh, and so that number is 646-331-8341. The number again is 646-331-8341. The country code is 1 for the United States. And uh, if you're overseas listening to this and don't want to pay to text someone overseas, you can just email me at bjbjmindelsohn.com with sheetrock the subject line, and I'll also send you a free book.
1: There you go. A man living by what he preaches. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, tr- you know, I, I you don't you don't see it these days, but I really do try to follow everything that I say as best as best no, I can.
1: that's certainly an interesting offer. So I ho- hope people will take you up on that. Bj, thank you very much for your time.
0: Yeah, thank you so much.
1: The author is Bj Mendelssohn. The book is Privacy and How We Get It Back. My name is Monica Wilkie, and I've been your host for this podcast. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.